More than three decades ago, I interviewed several hundred veterans of the Great War. What does their personal testimony of the conflict tell us? How did they deal with their memories? And what is the value of oral history? I've just returned from Normandy, from the annual commemorations of the D-Day landings. A different battlefield and a different war to the ones we discuss here in the Old Frontline podcast. But as I often say, the criss-cross paths of the Great War don't just extend across that section of northern France and Flanders and the places where the fighting was between those years of 1914-18. They echo across later decades, echo right to today, of course, But in Normandy we find traces of it as well. In Ranville War Cemetery, where I was, is the grave of Roy Fazan, a commando officer killed in the fighting on the Breville Ridge. He was named after his uncle, who was killed with the 5th Battalion, the Royal Sussex Regiment, in the Battle of Albers Ridge in 1915. He was from a little village called Wadhurst in Sussex. He was commissioned in the Royal Sussex Regiment originally then attached to the commandos. So there are two Roy Fazans, one killed in the Great War and the one killed in Normandy. And it's not a unique occurrence that you find survivors of the Great War who name their children after much-loved brothers or even friends killed on the battlefields of the First World War who would then themselves sadly go on to be killed in another world war just a few decades later. But that's not the point really of what I want to talk about in this podcast. I was in Normandy with the York branch of the Normandy Veterans Association. I've been travelling with them to Normandy for 14 years now. We started off with a big group of veterans and now, more than a dozen years later, only Ken Cook remains of the original band. He landed on D-Day with the Yorkshire Regiment, was wounded about six weeks later and then returned for the fighting in Germany in the final phase of the war. It's always a privilege to travel with veterans. Having done it twice over in many respects with the veterans of the Great War in the 80s and 90s and in the last two or three decades as well with the veterans of the Second World War and in particular as my job as a battlefield guide with Ledger Holidays, it's given me this unique position really, unique privilege to have spent so much time with these men and women because quite a few of the Second World War groups that I've taken across have included women who served in different branches of the services. And in recent weeks on Twitter, we've had a few Twitter spaces about the experience of war, the recording the experience of war and what it means to those who come back how they put that experience of war into words, either on the written page or through oral testimony in interviews or discussions or interviews for television. And it's made me think a lot about that time that I spent in the 80s and 90s with those veterans of the Great War. We had a podcast supporters evening recently as well where I gave a little talk about some of the veterans that I had interviewed. The podcast supporters evenings are really great because it gives me a chance for the the community that we've built through this podcast to have a chat with you, to hear your comments and your questions and to talk about some diverse subjects and get some guests on as well. 
and I can't thank our supporters enough for for what they do to in, help ensure that the podcast continues to be what it is. But that and being in Normandy with Ken Cook made me think perhaps there's a a wider opportunity here to tell the story of some of these veterans, some of the ones that I spoke about when we had the supporters evening, but a couple of others as well, just to kind of give an insight into what the veteran experience was from their point of view and and what it was like to talk to these men and what you could get from it. So that's what we're going to do here. And of course, for, for me, it kind of throws up some wider thoughts as well, because Ken Cork is 96, he's a very sprightly gentleman, and some of the other veterans that we saw were very much the same. But we know, and perhaps I know more than others, how the clock is ticking. It's already one minute to midnight for the generation of the Second World War, and of course that generation of the Great War passed with Harry Patch, and who will be the Harry Patch of the World War II generation. Hopefully that moment will not come for many years yet. But what will it mean in places like Normandy and Anzio and Monte Cassino and so many others besides when the veterans are so more? And this is, I suppose, what we learn from the Great War because the veterans have passed. It doesn't diminish the importance. It doesn't diminish the emotion or the feeling of going to places like Passchendaele or the Somme or across the flat fields of Luz. In many respects, we can still see and we still hear the echoes of those veterans. On the battlefields, we see the visible sign of the Great War, the dead. But amongst the dead, I think, are the shadows of those who returned and had to make sense of those four years in whatever way they could. Now, we've discussed Great War veterans on this podcast before, and I'm pretty confident that we'll discuss Great War veterans again in the future. But going back to the 1980s, I was very lucky to have a good history teacher who was very pro-oral history, encouraged us to speak to people who were there. And I think at that time it it was an emerging aspect of, of history in that traditionally it was kings and politicians and commanders who everyone focused on, not the ordinary person in those extraordinary circumstances. But for me, having been pointed in the direction of a couple of veterans and gone to speak to them, I think something in me changed in so many ways, and I found myself forever more being interested in what the experience of war meant to those who returned from it. And we see a glimpse of it, of course, for those who didn't return through their letters and their diaries. But that idea of history from below is something that will always fascinate me. Ordinary men in extraordinary circumstances. And when I began to look for Great War veterans, it it wasn't kind of a, a concerted campaign as such. It was more how do I find these people? And I've mentioned before how Martin Middlebrook's first day of the Somme and his Kaiser's Battle list veterans at the back and tell you where they were living when he interviewed them. And I used to use the telephone directories in the local library in the days when we had libraries and we had phone directories. You could look these guys up and most of them you would find. Very few people were ex-directory in those days. 
and you'd look them up and ring them up and have a chat with them. And not all of them were keen on being interviewed. We might think now that they all wanted to tell their story, but that wasn't always the case. And I discovered that not every single one of them had actually met Martin Middlebrook. He'd often sent someone down to speak to them, or he'd send out a veteran's questionnaire, a printed sheet, quite a big one, where he'd ask some specific questions about their war experience and who they were and what their background was, and they'd fill it in and send it back to him. And he often, I guess, looked at that and thought, that's worth speaking to, he's worth speaking to, follow that one up, but perhaps not that one. And I'm not sure what his criteria was for that, but not all of them had met him and not all of them had had any kind of follow-up interview with anyone else. But um, the ones that did want to talk, those were the ones, obviously, that I went round to see. And to get something out of these men wasn't an instantaneous process. A few of them, it was. They were like a coiled spring waiting for someone to press that button and uncoil them and let them out. But that was rare. That was pretty rare. For most of them, it was just a general chat. And one of the things that I used to do, and I learned this fairly early on, was rather than just dive straight into the war, was to talk about their childhood, the time before the war, where they'd grown up, where they'd gone to school, what that Edwardian period was like for them. And what it did, it kind of got them in the mood for thinking about the past. So when you got to the war, their mind was already on that level. And it didn't always work, but it generally did, because it made them think about a period in their life that perhaps they'd pushed to one side for all sorts of reasons. And one interview was never enough, with the really good ones. And you could normally suss out with uh, one of these veterans whether they had a lot more that they wanted to say. Some you went to see and you spoke to them once and you had a great meeting and you always, always learnt something, even if it was the minute eye of detail about what was in a soldier's housewife or what he kept in his small pack or how often he got letters from home and what kind of things came in the post and all sorts of things like that. But for a few, that would be it. For others, you realise that they'd had a long war, they'd been in a lot of different engagements, and by the way they spoke about it, you felt that they wanted to talk about it much more deeply than the most of the veterans would, would want to do. And in this podcast, I'm going to talk about four veterans who were very much in that category, who really wanted to impart their war service their war experience and what it meant to them and talk as well eventually about the wider repercussions of how it affected them in later life in all sorts of different ways. So we're going to take four veterans, four men, and discuss them and their war. The first of these veterans is not just someone who I went to interview about his great war experiences as an historian and kind of parked it there. This was someone who became a friend and a family friend because my mother really adored him and used to write to him as well and he used to write to her and speak to her on the phone. And they very much became part of my life, some of these men, and enriched it in so many different ways. And this first veteran is Malcolm Vivian. 
Malcolm Vivian came from quite a privileged background. His father was well-educated, was wealthy. He'd married an American. And there were three boys, all of whom who served in the Great War. Malcolm's brother was killed. Beresford was killed at Passchendaele in 1917. Another brother served in the Duke of Cornwall's Line Infantry and was decorated for gallantry. And he died eventually of uh, being gassed in the final phase of the war in 1918, but after the war was over, he came back and went off to Canada. The Vivians, that's V-Y-V-Y-A-N, they were the oldest Cornish family, and they had a, a family seat at a place called Trella Warren. Malcolm had never lived there. He visited it to visit cousins, and most of his cousins of his generation were in the army already when the war broke out. He'd been educated at a minor public school and then went to Cambridge, and he enlisted from there in 1914. He told me, actually, that later he went back to look at the War Memorial in the university and looked along the long list of names and realised there were so many that were familiar to him. But he joined the Royal Garrison Artillery. There was a family connection to Glamorgan in Wales, and he joined the Glamorganshire Territorial Force Royal Garrison Artillery, which formed a nucleus that became the 96th Siege Battery of the Royal Garrison Artillery. And once his training was done, they went across to France in early 1916 as a unit, and he served with them for nearly two years on the Western Front. But how did I meet Malcolm Vivian? Well, that's an interesting question. I didn't track him down. He found me. And I put a, an advert in the Stand 2 magazine of the Western Front Association, their journal, asking for information about an officer whose medals I'd bought. And I've put the wrong siege battery number. It should have been 93rd siege battery, but for some reason I'd put 96. And when it was published, he wrote to me, he saw my address, and he wrote to me and said, I'm an officer of this, this regiment. I don't remember anyone by that name. And I wrote to him and said, sorry, I made a mistake there. But you're obviously a, a veteran of the Great War, and I'd very much like to talk to you about your experiences and I'd just come back from a, a trip to the battlefields and I, and I wrote and I told him about what I'd seen, where I'd been to. And one of the places that I'd been to was Gomacor. And he wrote back and said, well, I, I fought at Gomacor. And this incredible correspondence began to a point where I was getting four or five letters a week from him written on little blue notepaper in biro and pages and pages for each letter would come through where he'd discuss some particular aspect of his war service, or he'd pick an aspect of his training or his experience as a gunner officer, as a forward observation officer, and give me chapter and verse on that particular subject, how to sight a 9.2-inch howitzer, how to set up a successful forward observation post, what to look for on the landscape to select targets for the guns, how to use maps, how to use air photos, and things like this. And it was absolutely fascinating. And obviously after a few weeks, probably months of correspondence like this, I went down to see him, and he lived in Saltash near Plymouth. His wife had sadly passed away, and he was living with his former housekeeper. She would put him up, basically, and he had his own little room there with his books and some images of the Napoleonic Wars that he had on his walls. 
and his comfy chair that he sat in, his little sausage dog that used to scatter around the room and jump up on his lap. And just like Ken Cook, he was a very sprightly guy. He was in his early 90s then. He was born in 1895, Malcolm Vivian. And I first travelled down to uh, Saltash in probably about 1986 when I was still at university to uh, to go and see him. And he took me down the local pub and we had a few drinks and had a chat about his war and we went for a walk along the river there. And it was the beginning of, of a great period of learning from him, but also a great friendship. He taught me, as so many of them did, <laughs> a lot of life lessons as well things that they'd gone through and this kind of experience of meeting them and talking to them and and what I found was with with men like him is that it was never necessarily a formal interview I didn't sit him down and interview him in fact I never got round to recording him I meant to on a couple of occasions but recording devices were a bit more primitive in those days if only I'd had an iPhone I've said that so often about veterans of the Great War But what I found was that those meetings were crucial in creating a relationship with a veteran, which would then solicit him to give more detail, in his case, in his letters. I think he found that was a comfortable way for him to put things down. Perhaps a lot of the things that he put in his letters, he might not have said to me verbally, face-to-face, but he could do it in the form of letter-writing. And that's an interesting aspect of it as well in the way that men record their war experience and are happy to record it in that way rather than speak it, rather than say it to somebody. So Malcolm's war began on the Somme. His siege battery moved up to the northern part of the Somme battlefields and they were uh, equipped with 9.2-inch howitzers, which are big howitzers. They break down into three major component parts, the carriage of the gun, the weapon itself and then a massive dirt box that has a couple of tons of earth in it to absorb the recoil of the gun when it fires. And they were pulled along on carriages. They sometimes had Holtz tractors, mechanical tractors that could pull the the weapon along roads. And it was not a mobile unit, really. I mean, it could be moved, obviously, but it wasn't something you could just strip down quickly and rebuild and move to another location. And this was something that came out in the discussions with him, that they often as a Royal Garrison Artillery unit got somewhat frustrated with the Royal Field Artillery and the Royal Horse Artillery who could move their kit a little bit more easily. Some of their heavy artillery group commanders and a heavy artillery group was a collection of siege batteries or heavy batteries commanded by a senior gunner officer and he would then dictate where they would be and where they would fire and so on. Some of those were Royal Horse Artillery or Royal Field Artillery officers who had no concept of how long it took and how complex it was to move weapons of this size. But Malcolm was up there and he spent quite a lot of time in and around the Gomacourt and Monchiot-Bois area. He was gassed before the Battle of the Somme at Monchiot-Bois and not seriously but seriously enough to to scare the living daylights out of him and think that he was going to die and it created a moment in his war experience that would haunt him in later life the gas that he was gassed with smelt of pineapples and for the rest of his life whenever he smelt pineapples it was a trigger moment to take him back to that point at Monchio Bois in May of 1916 and you think well surely you know he, you know he might have come from a, a fairly posh background but he wasn't eating pineapples every day and of course that's true but 
In the late 1920s, his family lost everything when the stock markets collapsed. And Malcolm went from being relatively wealthy, he was not super wealthy in any kind of way, but relatively wealthy, to being pretty much a pauper overnight. And he was married by then, he had responsibility. And he needed a job, and one of his uncles was a a vicar on the South Cornish coast. And he knew, and I don't know how he knew him, but he knew Joe Lyons, who ran the Joe Lyons tea bars and cafes across Britain. And he got Malcolm an interview with Joe Lyons to go along to get a job. And Malcolm went along in his best suits, sat there and talked to Joe Lyons. And Joe Lyons said, well, in my organisation, everyone starts at ground level and you work your way up. And you know, you were a, a temporary major in the Royal Garrison Artillery. You were decorated in the war. How are you going to be able to do that? And Malcolm paused and looked at him. He said, well, one thing I learned from the war is that rank and privilege doesn't mean everything. And I helped my men, did the tasks that my men did alongside my men during the war. And to me, doing the kind of work that you want me to do is absolutely normal based on my experiences in the Great War. Joe Lyons gave him a job and he started sweeping up the cafes and serving drinks. And one of the things they used to serve in those days was pineapple chunks in a bowl, probably out of a tin. But nevertheless, the smell of it used to freak him out. And he'd climb under a table, shaking, visibly shaking, thinking that he was back at Monchi and the gas was covering him. So, it again, just something small like that. It took ages to get that story out of him, but something small like that gave us an insight into how the war would remain with these men for the rest of their lives. On the first day of the Somme, Malcolm was in a dugout overlooking the attack of the 56th London Division at Gomcourt. And there's a previous episode of the podcast where I went into that in, in greater detail. One of the things that he had, he had a box of his war mementos, aerial photographs, and trench maps and he had a trench map that he'd used in that dugout that was still covered in the mud from the dugout from that period during the back of the Somme when he'd used the map to spot for his guns and his targets had been Rossignol Wood, Nightingale Woods, later for the Germans Cops 125, an area written about by the, the soldier author Ernst Junger And Malcolm had marked on the map some of the targets they'd been firing at. And on one of my subsequent trips, we went to have a look at Rossignol Woods and got the permission of the owner who lived in Foncavillier nearby, I think, uh, to go in there. And some massive shell craters from his 9.2-inch guns were still there. And I tried to take photographs of these. It's very difficult to take pictures of shell holes and mine craters and make them look like anything in a flat image. But I took them back and I, I showed them to him. And he was—he thought it was extraordinary that damage that he'd done on a battlefield in, in those days, 70, 80 years from that period, could still be there. And it's still there to this day. That impact that Malcolm Vivian had on the landscape of the Great War is still visible more than a century later. An incredible kind of connection. I suppose that's what I mean about how the battlefields are not just about the dead. There is this echo of those who survived and came home. Later, Malcolm served at Arras and was nearly killed in the sunken lane there when he was spotting for the guns and his NCO, signaller NCO, realised that a shell was coming straight down on him and grabbed him by his belt and pulled him down the lane and saved his life. 
After that, they moved up to the Flanders front and were firing on the German positions near to the village of Pervis. Now, this was not a British sector at that point. It was a Belgian army sector. There were some British troops further to the north at Newport, and there was a proposed seaborne landing there that never took place using British troops, a kind of World War I D-Day in some respects. But uh, that never happened. But Malcolm stayed up there, and they used a couple of observation towers, which again are still there. There's one in Pervis at the moment. I think there's under threat from collapse, and there needs to be some remedial work on it to stop that from happening. But he used those kind of observation posts there, and he met two English ladies who had a, a volunteer ambulance unit there. The Belgians were critically short of medical facilities, most of them having been wiped out or captured in the early phase of the war, and quite a lot of these volunteer ambulance units operated on the Belgian front. And Elsie Knocker and Mary Chisholm had set up this dressing station in a cellar house of Pervis and later published their letters called the Cellar House of Pervis, giving a fascinating insight into life on that part of the Western Front. And Malcolm was very proud of a first edition of that book that he had signed by both of them that had sent to him in the post after the war. So he was up there on that sector and then he applied because a lot of the work that they were doing by that stage of the war was in cooperation with the Royal Flying Corps where they'd send aircraft over to photograph targets for them and using that latest intelligence they could more correctly calibrate their weapons to hit the target dead on. So doing that work with the Royal Flying Corps had inspired him to go and apply to transfer to the RFC as an observer, to be an observer observing for the guns and with his experience on the ground he'd understand that kind of work and perhaps make more of a difference up there than he did on the ground itself. So he applied for that and was so captivated by flight that he then put in for training as a pilot and by the time that training was over the war had finished. He stayed on in the army for a couple of years after the end of the war, then he went back to Civvy Street, back to the family business, he married his sweetheart, and then of course, as I said, there was the terrible stock market collapse in the late 20s, and he was penniless. But he worked his way up through Joe Lyons to a point where, in 1939, he was the chief manager, I think, of almost all, if not all, of the branches of Joe Lyons in London, and was living in a London flat. He was still a reserve officer in the Royal Artillery, and when war broke out he was recalled and sent off to Suez, and he was in command of the anti-aircraft defences at Suez until the middle part of the war when he became ill and was sent home and eventually discharged. I only knew Malcolm for five years of his long life, but five incredible years of trips down to see him, of letters coming almost on a daily basis at one point, and of telephone conversations and him very much being a part of my life. But learning from him just as much about the experience of war and what it meant to him as the war itself, and the way that things like the pineapples could trigger the remembrance of that experience. And with, with all of these veterans, I have a, a place on the Western Front that I most connect with them. For Malcolm, there's probably quite a few, but it is the sunken lane near fontaine le croisie where he was spotting for the guns where he was nearly killed. It's well off the beaten track of the battlefields of the Western Front and is still quite a deep sunken lane to this day. 
there's wind farms across that landscape now, but it is still a place that I can go to and still a place that I can think about him and all that I learned from him. Although Malcolm Vivian was not a professional soldier, he was a territorial, he was a, a wartime volunteer, he was a man who took the army seriously. He spent two years on the Western Front and became quite adept at the job that he had, and later, of course, returned to soldiering with service in the Second World War. Another officer that I interviewed, and they weren't all officers, one of the things that I learned with going to see veterans that, that depending on their rank, there were things that they could tell you that other veterans could not. And that was to do with the kind of information that they were privy to during the war. So officers, of course, being gentlemen in the concept of the day, were privileged to a lot more information and often kept things because officers bought their own kit and they'd stuff official documents and maps and all kinds of other things in it and take it home with them. So they often had a lot more of that type of material, but not just them. Senior NCOs, sergeants, they could also, if they were on staff jobs or at headquarters, they might have a lot of this kind of information as well. But one officer that I went to see, or former officer that I went to see, James Leslie Lovegrove, was a very different kind of character to Malcolm Vivian. He came from a middle-class, outer London family, had grown up in a reasonably comfortable, well-off family. He'd gone to a, a local school, not a private school, and he joined the army at a point where your proviso for being an officer was not based on the fact that you had been to public school. That had changed with the Army Act being changed in 1917, and anybody could apply for a commission. So he joined the army, put him for a commission, was commissioned in the South Lancashire Regiment when he was 18 years old, and then sent across to the Western Front right at the tail end of the Third Battle of Ypres. The unit that he joined, the 2nd 4th South Lancs, was serving then in the Hutols Forest sector in the northeast part of the Ypres salient. They'd been in action, but he wasn't part of that action. He was joining as a reinforcement. And when he arrived, the photographs that I have of him, he looks very, very young. Although he was not undernourished as a child, far from it, he wasn't physically well-developed, and he was quite physically weak. And he told me that when he bought his Colt service revolver, which is a 455 caliber weapon, quite a powerful handgun, he could hardly hold it with one hand. Even with two, he struggled, and he fired it once and fell over and never fired it again. He said a lot of the time he'd go into the trenches and there were no bullets in the gun. He had no intention of firing it whatsoever because he was more likely to kill himself than the enemy. So when he turned up at battalion headquarters at his new unit, the CO looked up at him and probably thought, if I put this young child in charge of a platoon, he's going to get those men killed. So he sent him off on a course, cooperation with aircraft, came back from that machine gun course, came back from that trench mortar course, and course after course after course. And it got Jimmy Lovegrove to a lot of interesting little places behind the lines, of which he had very good tales of, but it meant that he was continually being sent away from the front because the commanding officer didn't think he was up to his job, basically, because of his youth, because of his weediness, because of his probable inability to do the job and command the men in the field. But one day he came back and it was a different commanding officer. The other one had been wounded. 
who took one look at him and said, "'Good God, man, you've been going on all these courses. "'What the hell have you been doing? "'Get in the front line with your men.' "'So he joined his men, and by now it was early 1918, "'and they'd moved down to the front near Levante in northern France.' And the Portuguese Expeditionary Force was now serving on that part of the front. And they did a lot of training with the Portuguese. And we often hear disparaging remarks in British soldiers' accounts of their Portuguese allies using that phrase pork and beans to describe them. But Jimmy Lovegrove had nothing but praise for them. He got on very well with them. And in early April 1918, with the German offensive on the Somme now in full swing, their unit was selected to move south to the Somme area and they were relieved for the first time in the front line by Portuguese troops. And just a few days later, the brunt of the next phase of the German advance, what we would call the Battle of the Lease, which began on the 9th of April 1918, broke against that part of northern France and the Portuguese suffered extensive casualties as a result. If Lovegrove and his men had stayed there, They would have been at the tip of the spear in the way of that wave of German troops coming in their direction. The area that they went down to in the Somme front by the time they got there was a quiet one. Jimmy Lovegrove always said that he was quite lucky in the places that he went to and lucky in spending all those months on courses. But finally his moment came in September 1918, that moment on the battlefield when his war would come into sharp focus and that was an attack on the German Hindenburg line. He went over the top with his revolver in hand, no rounds in it, waving it as he thought he was supposed to do, moving forward with his men in a typical platoon attack on the German positions when he was shot through the leg. Now at the time, a pretty severe wound, but he didn't realise that what he'd been shot by was not a machine gun or a German rifle, it was a German anti-tank rifle. And these anti-tank rifles had been developed in response to the British use of tanks and the Germans were using them extensively. And in this operation in September 1918, there were tanks there, but the Germans were firing these rifles blind. And one of the rounds from it, about the size of a modern 50 calibre round, went through his leg. Now, thankfully, it didn't touch a bone because if it had done, it would have taken his leg off. It went through the fleshy part of his leg, caused a pretty severe wound which he still had a scar for when I knew him in the 1980s and 90s but it went straight through that part of his leg and it hit a tree behind him and when he went down with the impact of the shock of the bullet striking him he looked around for his batman now every officer had a batman a servant and he thought that the batman would be rushing up to him to slap on a field dressing and look at his wound but he couldn't see him eventually he did come along just as the stretcher bearers got to him And he said to him, you know, where have you been? And he said, well, I've got this for you, sir. It's your bullet. It's your bullet with your name on it. And he'd gone to the tree. He'd obviously seen the bullet strike the tree, and the bullet was in the tree, and he'd prized it out with his jackknife and given it to his officer. And as he was being led away on the stretcher, the Batman handed the bullet over. Jimmy Lovegrove clutched it in his hand, and he would keep it in that hand for much of the rest of his life. So, again, looking at how the war, what triggered memories of the war and how men dealt with their war, for James Lovegrove, it was the bullet with his name on it. And he kept it in his pocket. Every time I met him, and he was a member of our local Sussex Western Front Association branch, and that's how I came to meet him. He would come along 
to our meetings and he'd sit in the corner sometimes give a little talk about some aspects of his war experience and then I went to see him at his home quite a few times he had quite a lot of aerial photographs of the places that he served and photographs of himself in France and in his little garden he was very proud of his garden he was growing peas the first time I went to see him and he was very keen to show me these peas his nickname was Smiler Lovegrove he was always smiling and laughing and I said to him, yeah, great peas, Mr. Lovegrove. And he said, no, no, he said, look what, what I've constructed to hang them on. And it was a series of what were essentially copies of Great War barbed wire pickets. And it was just kind of this little reflection of the Great War. Even in his garden, there was a bit of the Great War, as it were. But in his pocket was that bullet. And when we used to go to Western Front meetings or remembrance ceremonies, I'd see him there and I'd see his hand go in his pocket and just like a rosary bead, really, it was something that he was forever passing through his fingers. What was going through his mind as he did that? What memories had triggered the necessity, the compulsion on his part to seek that bullet out? The bullet that could so easily have killed him, so easily have ended that young life. But he went on and lived into his mid-90s. He was recorded by the Imperial War Museum, Oral History Archive, Peter Hart, the excellent work that Peter's done over so many years. And when I went to see the Peter Jackson colorization of the, the Great War film in 2018 for the centenary, an amazing bit of cinema and something that I'd encourage any listener to this podcast to seek out and watch. It's a modernisation of that film in so many ways, a colourisation of it, a slowing it down to a more normal pace and using voice analysts to work out what some of the soldiers are saying in what is of course a silent film, they then used actors to voice those words as well and that gave a kind of different dimension to it. But there's no narrator in the film, there's no historians. It's the recordings that Peter Hart and his colleagues did of Great War veterans that's what we hear as the film unfolds and while I was sitting there one of the first voices that I heard that I recognised was Jimmy Lovegrove was James Lovegrove and it was such a fantastic feeling quite a moving one as well to hear his voice after so many years he was a modest unassuming man a generous man and an accidental warrior he kind of stumbled through the Great War, he often said. And so many, I would guess, of his generation probably felt something similar. But yet he'd seen, walked right to the edge, he'd seen the worst of the war, nearly been killed himself. And in him it created a desire to live a good, full life, an honest life, a life beyond the war and while he would openly talk about his experiences it was something that he was not obsessed with and he had no desire at all to return to the western front to revisit those battlefields there were men buried there men from his platoon the graves of other officers that he'd known but he had no desire to go there and that was a another lesson that i learned from men like him that not all of them wanted to confront it in that way. And that, I think, said a lot about the war and what it meant to them and how it had affected them.
As I began to uncover and interview more Great War veterans, I suppose to a degree I became more professional at doing it. I mean, this wasn't my job, of course. I was a student for a big chunk of this, and down at what is now the University of Chichester on the south coast of Sussex, and in an area where there were a lot of retirement flats and retirement areas and homes for elderly people and in those of course were great war veterans and I got to hear of a place called Gifford House in Worthing which was a home for disabled ex-servicemen it was some kind of charity where if you had no family and no one to look after you and you'd been disabled through military service then you could go and live there and a bit like Chelsea Pensioners Home, but not as formal as that. They weren't running around in any kind of uniform. The staff were all ex-military, naval, nursing personnel, and some of them had achieved some rank and liked to be addressed in that manner, something I learned very quickly when I got in touch with them. And they were very helpful when I went there. I rang them up in the, in the first instance and said, uh, I'm interested in speaking to any Great War veterans that you may have living in Gifford House, and they said, how many do you want? Uh, and I think there was about a dozen or so there at that particular point. I just missed someone who'd flown in combat with a Red Baron, who'd just passed away, and a man who'd won the Victoria Cross in Delville Woods. So it was an interesting place full of diverse veterans and changing veterans, because over the time that I went there, new ones were admitted and, and I got to meet some new ones. But when I first went there... I said to them, you know, who should I go and speak to? And they recommended a particular chap, and I went to see him, and he'd served in a lot of different regiments. And he'd served in different sectors, but not for very long. He'd been booted from one unit to another, and perhaps that indicated that he was not a particularly good soldier and no one wanted to hang on to him for very long, a bit like a military hot potato. They kept moving him around. And he was interesting to talk to. Again, he... You know, even someone like that uh, who didn't serve in any great battles or spent a lot of time in any particular place could always give you an insight into something, training, food, equipment, whatever. So I went back to the nursing staff and said, who shouldn't I speak to? And they sent me in the direction of George Butler. Now, George Butler, uh, he's not the one I'm going to speak about now. He served in the Lancashire Fusiliers and the Machine Gun Corps, and I've spoken about him quite a lot in this podcast in different episodes relating to places where he was but through him I asked him in fact you know who are your who are your pals here George who do you talk to and he said oh you, you should go and have a, a chat with Frank Frank spent two years on the western front so I went to see Frank and this was Frank Plum Frank Plum was from Suffolk a little place called Copdock where his father ran the post office there and it's really nice that Someone who follows me on Twitter knew Frank Plum's family and comes from that area. Anyway, he grew up there and he joined the Suffolk Cyclists Battalion on the outbreak of the war, a territorial battalion, and he served with them for the first two years of the conflict at home. And then in 1916, the Battle of the Somme began and the battalions of the Suffolk Regiment had taken heavy casualties on the front there in the opening stage of the Battle of the Somme and he was sent over as a reinforcement draft and he joined the 11th Battalion, the Suffolk Regiment, the Cambridgeshire Battalion. They had been pretty much annihilated on the first day of the Somme in the fighting around La Boiselle, and so he joined as a, a replacement for the men who'd been lost in that engagement. And he served with them for the next nearly two years on the Western Front, at the tail end of the Battle of the Somme, 
and then in 1917 took part in actions at Arras in April at Ruex and then in the fighting around Polkapel in October of that year. At Ruex he'd been in the attack on the village there and had jumped down into a German trench when one of the defenders had thrown a stick grenade at him and the stick grenade had come through the air towards him, landed straight at his feet and exploded and blew him out the trench right up onto the parapet near the wire and he was quite badly wounded by this. Now if you think that a grenade had gone off at his feet, why didn't it kill him? Well the Germans used grenades in a different way to us. German grenades obviously could kill soldiers and he was pretty much nearly killed in, in that but they were used by the Germans to suppress troops to enable sections to make an attack. So you'd throw grenades, the explosions would mean the defenders would keep their heads down and then you'd send an assault team in to overrun that position. That was the German philosophy of using grenades in many respects. The British grenades were much more powerful. The kind of explosive in a Mills bomb was very powerful indeed. And if that had been a Mills hand grenade, then Frank Plum would not have survived that incident. So he survived, and he was telling me this story, and again, these kind of stories did not come out the first time you spoke to them. You'd have to win their trust a little bit, and they'd have to understand what your motives were for talking to them. And I think they had to have enough confidence in you that you had enough maturity to really take on board some of the things that they were they were saying to you. I was in my 20s then, and I think very often they looked at me as they looked in a mirror because they were looking at someone who was the age that they were during the period that we were discussing. And perhaps they saw me as a contemporary. Perhaps that helped. I, I don't know. But he was telling me this story, and he'd, he'd mentioned that he'd been wounded there. Then he, on a later occasion, he went into it in much more detail, describing how the explosion had blown him uncontrollably out of this trench up onto nearly onto the German wire. And he paused at one point, and he kind of looked at me. He said, oh, he said... Uh, I did have children after the war, so he was very keen to make that fact known to me. And I think that occasionally the, these little things, they, they slipped out and they gave a side to themselves, a human side to themselves, which was good because it meant that they were relaxed in the way that they were discussing these things, which I think was important because I, although I got a huge amount out of this and it's enabled me to talk to an audience through this podcast about them now I also like to think that they got something from it as well that they kept all of this inside them for so long and deliberately so in most cases because they didn't want to confront it and then they got to a point in their 80s where they could contain it no longer now that wasn't true for every one of them but it was true for a vast majority of the ones that I spoke to and I've seen exactly the same thing happen with the second world war generation so there's probably some kind of medical explanation of that. But whatever the reason, that's what I saw. And I like to think that having met someone like me who was a stranger, they couldn't say these things to their own family, but they could say them to me, and I made them feel comfortable enough to be able to impart those stories. And it helped them in some small way, it helped them deal with it, come to terms with it, lay some ghosts to rest. And I think the ones that then went on, to go and visit battlefields as well, I like to think that helped them. Not enough of the Great War veterans did that. It was more complex in some respects. They were much older men, that generation, than the generation the Second World War is now. I look at Ken Cook, and he is so different to most of those Great War veterans. 
And I think for him and his contemporaries in the York Normandy Veterans Branch, going back again and again has really helped them, really helped them process and understand what they went through and gave them a, a desire to leave a legacy of that experience behind by telling their stories. And if only that had been more widely possible with a generation of the First World War. So Frank Plum was wounded in Arras, he fought at Passchendaele, and then in the spring of 1918, his unit came under attack in the German offensives on two separate occasions, on the Somme in March, and then in the Flanders during the Battle of the Lease in April 1918. He was by then a platoon sergeant, and the number of officers in his battalion was so low that he was essentially given the job of a platoon officer to be in charge of it. This wasn't an uncommon thing at that stage of the war. And he'd gone right through the battles of March and April 1918. He'd survived unscathed. The battalion had taken heavy casualties in both those engagements, and they'd been pulled out of the line for a period of rest. And they went back to a hutted camp somewhere beyond deep towards Popperinger. Now, this had been quite some way behind the lines in early 1918, before the German attacks. But the way the Germans had not broken through at Ypres, but had broken through to the south, it created this salient, new salient, where the front line was actually not that far away from Popperinger, and this camp was pretty close to where the front line positions were. Nevertheless, they went into the, the huts there, and the post finally caught up with them after quite a few weeks of them being on the move. And it had been Frank's birthday, and his mother had made him a cake, put it in a tin and sent it through the Army Postal Service, and it had finally caught up with him and arrived. And his last memory of that camp was sitting on one of the beds in the huts with the tin on his lap with the lid open, and he was reaching for his jackknife to chop the cake up into little sections to give to the men in his platoon when out on the road a massive German shell exploded and a fragment, a huge fragment of that shell came straight through the wooden wall and hit Frank in the face, lifted him up in the air and threw him against the wall. It almost severed his jaw that was hanging by sinews and it had fractured his spine. The impact of it had fractured his spine. He was lying there in a heap on the floor. The stretcher bearers came in put him on a stretcher, there was a lot of shelling going on outside and he said that as they were taking him towards the aid post a couple of times they dropped the stretcher during the shelling. Now you imagine somebody with a spinal injury being dropped from waist high onto hard ground. The agony we can only begin to imagine. But they got him into the back of an ambulance, got him away, got him to the casualty clearing station, by a miracle he survived, got him to a, a base hospital and at that base hospital there was an American surgeon there who was one of those who was beginning the kind of pioneering work in repairing facial injuries, plastic surgery as we'd call it now. And I was reminded of this again recently with a new book by Dr Lindsay Fitzharris, The Facemaker, which is an excellent new telling of this story about how they dealt with men like Frank Plum and rebuilt their faces and rebuilt their lives as well and Dr Fitzharris's book is highly recommended it's available now but coming back to Frank he spent quite a long time in hospital undergoing this surgery and was discharged through wounds obviously he was no longer physically fit to serve and having been discharged like that he was given a silver war badge which is a little silver round badge with for services rendered 
on it and a unique number on the back that identified it as his badge and a, a big certificate that came with it as well. And when I went to see him in his little corner of Gifford House, he was wearing his Civil War badge and he had his certificate hanging on the wall behind him. He was very, very proud of that. He also had some of the, the bits and pieces that had held his face together as souvenirs, this kind of wiring that had held his lower jaw together in, in the period that it had been uh, rebuilt. But despite those terrible injuries, he lived a full and long life. He raised a family and he lived on into his 90s. He was an incredible man in so many respects and a modest man. And again, it took quite a few visits with these men to really get them to tell these sort of stories. Now, he was not one to blow his own trumpet, but he told me a story that after the war, he was walking down a town somewhere in Suffolk and he saw his old commanding officer coming down towards him on the other side of the street who when he saw Frank Plum stopped dead in his tracks and went white and rushed over to see him and he said Plum I, I didn't know that you'd survived and he told him a story that uh, after Frank Plum had been wounded they had a meeting of the officers to discuss who should be awarded medals for gallantry for the recent action that they'd been in and Frank Plum's name came up for the recommendation for the Victoria Cross for a series of acts of bravery when he'd been acting as a platoon commander and sitting there in the group of officers was the medical officer who said that I'm telling you now gentlemen that Sergeant Plum will not survive his wounds they're so serious and I do not believe in posthumous awards so I cannot sanction the idea of him being awarded the Victoria Cross and, and that opinion weighed heavy on the other officers that were there and a recommendation did not go forward. Now I'm sure there are many soldiers that claim that they should have been awarded the VC but this wasn't the first story that he told me, and he told it in such a modest way that I'm sure that it was true. It certainly was very believable, given the circumstances, and there were many that did not believe in posthumous awards to soldiers. So Frank was a, another one of those veterans that didn't want to go back, ever want to go back to the battlefields. In talking about what it was like to have sustained those kind of injuries and survive them and live with the repercussions of them, what he has left us is this incredible legacy of what it was like to have been an early guinea pig of plastic surgery. On one of my trips to the Somme, I met up with a, a friend of mine in the Western Front Association, Trevor Tasker, who was out there in a red, bright red minibus with a group of Welsh veterans who'd served in the Welsh division at Mamet's Wood, and they were looking at the early idea of building a memorial there, which resulted in the Red Dragon that we know at Mamet's Wood today. And that kind of developed an interest in me in, in the role of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers and the South Wales Borders and the Welsh troops who fought on the Somme in 1916. And then on another trip, when I was over walking the ground with my father, we bumped into two brothers from Chester whose father had served in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers and they were wandering around following his war and I got friendly with them and through them they got me to write a little piece in the local newspaper about what the Royal Welsh Fusiliers had done on the Somme and this prompted a number of people to get in touch including some veterans. And one of those was another one of these extraordinary ones that I went to see, Albert Chesters. Albert Chesters was from Wrexham, and he grew up in a typical Welsh mining family, living in a terraced house. The whole family 
had worked in one capacity or other for the local pit. His father and one of his brothers had been killed in a mining accident in 1912. And for Albert, that was going to be his life, underground, working in a coal mine. And then the Great War came along. And he enlisted, as many miners could do. It wasn't a protected occupation. They weren't forbidden from joining the army. And he decided to go and enlist in the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, the 17th Battalion Royal Welsh Fusiliers being raised in his area. And he thought to himself, well, you know, we're being told that the war will be over by Christmas. I can join the army. They'll feed me some decent food. I'll march around in the fresh air for a little while. And then the war will be over and I can go back home and resume my duties in the pit. It wasn't quite like that. He joined up, he did his training, his unit went to war at the end of 1915 and served in the Levante front. Now when he joined the army he had never picked up a weapon, a rifle or anything in his life. He had no reason to do that working underground in a coal mine. But he discovered that with a rifle in his hand he was a natural crack shot and he became a marksman and when he went to the western front he was part of the battalion scouts and snipers team. And on the Levante front in late 1915 and early 1916, he carried out sniping activities on that part of the battlefield, a very static part of the battlefield. And he set up observation posts. Their duty was not just to shoot the enemy, they were there to observe as well, to work out what type of unit was opposite them, where their key positions were. But he did do some sniping and he got into no man's land. And at one point he went out into a shell crater and dug underneath the body of a horse that was there and fired through its rib cages into the German positions in a location where he thought that the Germans would have no idea that any kind of sniper would be operating from there. And he told me these stories and he said, uh, and he paused again, it, it took a little bit of time to get them to tell you these things, but he paused and he said, oh, he said, I just want to make it clear, he said that I only shot officers I didn't shoot ordinary soldiers like me. I, I knew that the Germans, the ordinary fellows, they were in the same lot as me. They were in the same mud, eating the same kind of food. He said, so when it came to shooting one of the enemy, unless my life was on the line, I'd only shoot officers. And of course, as part of his training, they'd been taught how to recognise German rank and uniform and identify officers as opposed to men. But it was a bit of an interesting insight into class struggle perhaps of of that period from an ordinary working class miner and what he thought of the people above him but after quite a few months of this type of warfare static warfare up in northern france the battalion was then moved down to the somme front and they marched all the way down in the hot summer of 1916 to take part in the attack on mamet's wood snipers were not required for that operation so he had his Lee Enfield rifle with its sniper scope taken off of him. He was given back a normal Lee Enfield with a bayonets and became a rifleman in a rifle platoon again and that was going to be his task in the attack. Now he was not in the first wave of the assault on the 7th of July. He watched the men of the Welsh Regiment and the South Wales Borderers go forward into the attack. There had not been a very good bombardment of the German positions there and the wood was hardly touched and he remembered German machine gun platforms up in the trees laying down machine gun fire into a valley before the wood which became known as Death Valley and those battalions of the South Wales borders and the Welsh Regiment melting away under that machine gun fire. A few days later it was his turn, they moved up to the southern tip of the wood, got into the wood and the fighting in Mamet's wood was, was, not, a, was not trench warfare. 
It was fighting from tree to tree, smash tree to smash tree, shell hole to shell hole, and the rides, the pathways cut through the wood from pathway from ride to ride. And as they were moving forward, they came under fire, and it was clear to Albert, being a sniper himself, that they were under fire from a German sniper. So he used his training to try and track this man and kill him to stop him shooting his comrades. And he was following him around and he thought he'd just got a bead on him and he was about to take a shot and he moved his leg slightly so that his knee was exposed around the corner of a tree. German soldier saw this open fire and a bullet took Albert's kneecap off. That was a serious wound that knocked him flat. He realised there was no way he was going to be able to stand up again and continue with the fight. He managed to drag himself into cover so that the second shot from the sniper didn't kill him. And he moved his way back through the undergrowth got to the edge of the woods where some stretcher bearers found him, took him to an aid post, patched him up, took his webbing equipment off him, put him on a stretcher and evacuated him down the line. That was the end of his war. That injury to his knee was so severe that he was not able to continue serving as a soldier, not even in a home service capacity. And he was discharged about a year later in 1917. He too was awarded the Silver War Badge like... Frank Plum, and again he was very proud of that, he had it on his shelf in his front room. His children had taken his medals, his service medals, down the local football field in the 20s or 30s and lost them, so he didn't have his medals, but he was very proud of his Civil War badge, and he had a massive portrait photograph of himself that hung on his wall, and it was one of those classic photographs showing him in his uniform of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers. And the first time I went to see him, he spoke non-stop for three hours without a pause. It came flooding out. And he was an ordinary working class lad. He was not as well educated, obviously, as Jimmy Lovegrove or Malcolm Vivian. And he expressed it in very simple terms. But it was incredibly moving to hear the way he described what the fighting was like and what it was like to be a sniper and carry out those kind of duties. And when he came back from the war in 1917, I said to him, well, what did you do? You were so badly injured you couldn't continue to fight. He said, I just went straight back down the pit. He said, I dragged that dodgy leg behind me for the rest of my life. I worked my way through the pit, got a manager's job, and he continued to work in the coal mine until he retired. Now, the unit that he was in had an old comrade association, and they met on a regular basis, but he never went. He said he wanted to just put the war behind him and, and carry on with his life, the life that he'd always been destined to be a part of, working in a coal mine, working in the pit. But what was really great at that time is that with my two friends from Chester, we tracked down another veteran of the same battalion who'd served with Albert, and for the first time since 1917, he met a fellow comrade and they were reunited and I think it was another point in his that latter part of his life in which a door was opened and he stepped through and he was able to talk about the war with someone else in a way that he'd probably not been able to do in decades or perhaps ever. What was clear with men like Albert is that they had this necessity for that release to talk for three hours continuously about your war service is extraordinary. For any of us to talk continuously for three hours is extraordinary. But it all came flooding out. And because it had been held so tightly, so closely for so many years, all the detail came out with it as well. 
And one of the interesting little things with him is that it prompted him to write something. Now, he did not come from a background where that kind of thing was normal. And he went down to his local newsagent and bought a little pad, again, of blue notepaper, a bit like Malcolm Vivian's letters. And he sat there over a period of time and wrote about 30 pages outlining his war experience. And at the end, he, he signed it, not Albert Chester's, but he gave his wartime postal address that would have been used to send letters to him when he was in the trenches. And again, it's in very plain language, very simple language. There's not a lot of flowery words in there, but I think it conveys so much. Oral history like this has its value, but it, it has its problems as well. If we've ever been in a part of our life where we've experienced something and people around us have experienced it as well, we'll know that each individual gives their own perspective on it. And this is often used to question the value of oral history. It's just one man's opinion, one woman's experience. But I think that's kind of missing the point, really, of what oral history gives us. If you want to discover why battles were fought and understand why commanders made decisions, talking to an ordinary Tommy who was in a trench is not going to give you that. But if you want to get an insight into the human experience of war and what it meant to fight through a war, live through a war, and come home and live with that war for the rest of your life, then oral history can give us an insight into that and so many other aspects of history that aren't always contained in the archive record. For me, I hope really that the voices of men like Malcolm Vivian, Jimmy Lovegrove, Frank Plum and Albert Chesters are part of a wider legacy of what the Great War means to us more than a century later. Because when we travel to those places now, we do just see the dead. We see the cemeteries, the beautiful silent cities maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. We visit the memorials that often refer us to the glorious dead. But amongst all that, I'd hope that there are still voices of those who walked away from the Western Front, who walked away from the battlefields of the Great War and came home. So much of the testimony of men like these is in archives, in documentaries, and in the pages of books by authors like Peter Hart, who interviewed so many of them, Lynn MacDonald, Martin Middlebrook, and so many others. And walking across that ground today, I think we can still find the echoes of those voices, of those forgotten survivors, and their war, voices that, at least for me, seem to weave their way through the pathways that we tread along the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.